Okay, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, for those of you who weren't here seven hours ago when we started this, I'll reintroduce myself. Uh, Simon Lester, trade policy analyst here at the Cato, Cato Institute. Welcome to our panel on dispute settlement. For many years, all I did was dispute settlement. Uh, so it's exciting for me that it's such a big focus of the NAFTA. We have three chapters, three NAFTA chapters in particular that we're going to be discussing. Chapters 11, 19, and 20 have all been hot topics in the NAFTA renegotiation. The Trump administration is proposing big changes to all of them, um, ranging from total elimination to merely radical reform. I think some of the proposals are reasonable, at least in the sense that, hey, a lot of other people have been saying similar things. Um, there is one particular proposal that I, I feel like is a little more extreme and doesn't have any supporters that, that I can think of. Uh, we have a great panel to talk about all of this. I'm going to give brief introductions, just so we don't get bogged down talking about all their accomplishments. They're all very accomplished. Um, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, in determining the speaking order, I took the least imaginative approach possible. We're going in numerical order, chapter 11, 19, and 20. I couldn't think of any better order. Um, so we're going to start with Mike Smart, the Managing Director at Rock Creek Global Advisors. Uh, Mike is going to be discussing the very controversial issue of investor state dispute settlement, which in the NAFTA is in chapter 11. And then we're going to go to John Magnus, uh, who has his own law firm called Trade Wins. John is going to be talking about the Chapter 19 Binational Panel Review of Anti-Dumping Countervailing Duties. Uh, next, uh, I'm listed as the moderator, but I'm going to do a little panelist work myself. I'm going to talk about the Chapter 20 State-to-State -State Dispute Settlement Process. And then finally, we're going to, we're going to end with uh, Jennifer Hillman, professor at Georgetown Law Center. Uh, Jennifer uh, may have some reactions to what the rest of us have said, and she may sort of you know, build on the things we said and talk about uh, relations to other dispute settlement mechanisms. Um, and so then after she talks, we'll have maybe a little discussion amongst ourselves and hopefully leave time for some Q&A from the audience. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike to kick us off. Thank you, Simon, and thank you, Cato, for inviting me to participate. Um, Simon suggested an elegantly simple outline. I'm going to follow it precisely. Uh, four points. What is Chapter 11 and why is it in NAFTA? What are the arguments against Chapter 11? What is the state of play in negotiations? And what should be the outcome? Um, so in very simple terms, NAFTA, like all other, virtually all other US free trade agreements and 40 bilateral investment treaties, allows investors from a party certain rights uh, when they invest in the territory of the other party. Um, five core rights that you should keep in mind. First is non-discrimination. That's both national treatment and most favored nation treatment. The government's obligation is to treat you as a foreign investor no less favorably than a domestic investor or an investor from a third country. Now, in US practice, the important feature of national treatment is that it applies not only to the treatment of an investment after it is established, but in the establishment of that investment. This is the market access feature of national treatment. So what it does is it pries open markets that were closed, sectors that were closed to foreign investment. Second, the minimum standard of treatment under customary international law. This covers things like arbitrary treatment, treatment in bad faith, uh, denial of justice. Uh, it is the absolute standard of treatment under customary international law. So it's not comparative. You don't look at the treatment as compared to a, a domestic national or a national from a third country. 
expropriation. This is uh, government action that essentially wipes out the value of, uh, of an investment. It includes both physical takings uh, as well as regulatory takings with the same effect. Fourth is performance requirements. These are essentially rules against uh, local content requirements. Uh, so that governments cannot, as a condition of allowing you to invest or to operate, require that you buy goods and services locally. Uh, the fifth is uh, uh, free transfers of capital. So it is your right to bring capital into the country to support your investment and to send dividends and royalties and other payments out of the country. That's basically it. Now, the magic uh, in Chapter 11 is in the enforceability of these rights. So if an individual investor believes that the government has breached one of these five core obligations that I've mentioned, the investor can submit a claim to an independent international arbitral tribunal. And, and that is composed of three people. They will decide whether one of these norms has been breached, and if so, what the damages are. That's it. That's the only remedy. In rare cases, you can have injunctive relief, return of the property, but there's no effect on the underlying uh, domestic laws or regulations. Now, since NAFTA has entered into force, um, there have been a few dozen cases, uh, 18 against the United States, 18 decided cases. Uh, we're 18 and 0 in those cases. Not, not surprisingly, because as we'll talk about more, these rules are drawn from the US legal system. Now, why are they, why do we have these rules in NAFTA? I would say we have these rules because these international agreements, they're agreements between governments to create rules on openness and transparency and non-discrimination, essentially to create commercial opportunities for US companies. That's what they're about. Now, some of these opportunities can be seized simply by exporting. You make it here and you ship it there. Uh, but there are a lot of cases where those opportunities are not available unless you invest overseas. Um, Christy, in the last se session, talked about services. Huge part of the US economy in many service sectors Either you must, by government relation, uh, regulation, uh, establish a local presence, or simply um, you know, to deliver the product efficiently, you need to be close to customers. Obviously, in the case of natural resources, you can't explore and produce natural resources unless you invest in the country where those resources are located. Infrastructure projects, you can't go in and build and operate an airport under a concession contract with the government unless you're invested there. And then there are all kinds of other you know, examples where those opportunities are best seized when you're integrating production and distribution chains uh, with investments overseas. And the importance of this is, rec you know, is reflected in, in the data. If you compare the sales by overseas affiliates of US firms, it's about double the value of US exports. So it's just a huge chunk um, of, uh, of, of what uh, US companies are able to do. Um, and you know, in terms of tracing these benefits back to the U.S. economy, I mean, I think there's quite a bit of evidence to support that as well. You know, companies that are invested overseas, they export more, they tend to pay their workers more, they do far more R&D in the United States. In other words, U.S. companies really succeed and are strong at home if they're active in the global economy, including through investment. Okay, so if that's true, uh, then what about the critics? Um, why is chapter 11 so controversial? Uh, and I've laid out a few arguments in no particular order, but one, and maybe the oldest, is the, these investment rules 
uh, threaten existing regulation and have a chilling effect on future regulation. Um, the problem with this argument is that the rules in our investment chapters and bilateral investment treaties find reflection in the US legal system. It is no surprise we were the loudest voice in creating these rules. Not uh, surprisingly, we, 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 we created them in our own image. So when I referred to discrimination protections before, well, you find that in the Equal Protection Clause, arbitrary and capricious treatment, substantive due process, expropriation, of course, the Takings Clause. So if there is a concern that property rights are too strong and are getting in the way of important regulation, the first place we have to look is the US system. Because if you look at in terms of how foreign investors, how they engage these systems, you would conclude that the property rights and the procedures to enforce those rights are superior under US law than under our treaties. Why? Because foreign investors by file thousands of cases in US courts over the years to enforce these property rights. Whereas in the case of bilateral investment treaties or FTAs, a total of 18 cases. So they've sort of voted with how they choose to assert their rights uh, that in fact uh, uh, US legal rights are more protective uh, when combined with the mechanisms. The, the last thing I would say is that show me the case where a non-discriminatory regulation in the public interest has been overturned by an investment tribunal. And don't cite filed cases. The other side is famous for that. They, you know, 15 years ago, they talked about the case where a Canadian investor challenged the United States for a California law that outlawed the use of a certain gasoline add additive that California found was getting into the groundwater. And, and this was going to be the, 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 the end of NAFTA, the, you know, the reason to kind of blow up the system. Well, the tribunal looked at it and said, no, there was evidence to support this restriction. No, it's not discriminatory. You didn't apply it to ethanol, the domestic producers. That doesn't matter. What you found here was a legitimate risk, and you acted on that. Not only that, the tribunal awarded the United States attorney's fees. So there's no bloody shirt, is what I'm saying. I mean, you look at the cases, and at least in my opinion, they come out the right way, which is appropriately protective of regulation. OK, so uh, another argument. Uh, these investment rules encourage offshoring of US production. I've, I've kind of already addressed that to explain the various ways or reasons that, that companies invest overseas. But I think just to support it with one additional statistic, if you look at the total sales of the foreign affiliates of US multinationals, less than 10% of those sales are into the United States. The other 90% are in the market where they're producing it or other foreign markets. It's a little higher in the case of Canada and Mexico, not surprisingly, because we've got you know, integrated supply chains. But still, even there, it's Mexico is 26%, Canada is 20%. So the idea that the only reason companies invest overseas is to sell back into the US market just isn't borne out by the data. Um, another interesting argument I'm not sure I fully understand is that these investment rules represent government interference in the market. They're putting, government is putting its thumb on the scale. And, and this was really the essence of Ambassador Lighthizer's uh, 
press conference following the fourth round of NAFTA negotiations. And I'm still struggling to understand. I mean, I had always thought of these agreements, there being agreements between governments about how they were going to refrain from certain types of conduct to allow the market to function more efficiently. Um, so uh, I, I don't get that. I, I would say if you do buy the argument, which is essentially take the market as you find it and don't have government you know, do the hard work of creating rules, that argument applies with equal force to most of the chapters of the agreement. I mean, why should we tell another uh, market what kinds of intellectual property rights they should have, what the patent term should be, or copyright term, or should there be criminal penalties available for you know, commercial scale counterfeiting? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's a risk. And uh, uh, you know, traditionally, we have thought that it's the role of government to make agreements to uh, support these rights. Uh, and so I would just say that if you subscribe to this, I think the logical conclusion takes you further than just the investment chapter. Uh, another interesting argument is that by raising standards in the rule of law overseas, we erode what is a United States comparative advantage. Uh, in other words, you know, uh, we look better by comparison if, if other countries are less respectful of these uh, property rights. Uh, I, I, I get that on some level. I guess I would just submit that uh, the U.S. economy overall is better if more of our important markets are following rules-based systems that are non-discriminatory and transparent. Um, another argument is that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a non-governmental solution for this. If there are risks in a market for an investor that it wants to mitigate, you buy political risk insurance. Well, um, if you look at the market for these products, incredibly limited, generally only cover expropriation, uh, very limited availability, and very high cost. So if what, one of the things we're concerned about is helping the smaller and medium-sized companies invest and go abroad, uh, this is, uh, uh, would be counterproductive. The other ironic thing is that you know, this is a really difficult thing to insure for. Right? right now, we insure for it by having rules that if breached, the investor itself can uh, receive compensation from the foreign government. Now, ironically, if we said, no, you're going to rely on these policies, many of them are actually supported by the government through OPEC, for example. And so you'd be shifting liability for damages from foreign governments to US taxpayers, which I don't think makes sense. Um, another argument is that the ISDS is somehow a subsidy, that we, we press these uh, uh, demands for different investment protections, and then we can do less for someone in the US, say, concerned about market access. And I'm sure that's true. I mean, there are trade-offs throughout a negotiation. But at the same time, you know, we make IP protection for pharmaceuticals a very high priority. That could mean we don't get as good a deal on pork tariffs. But I guess I've never thought about that as pig farmers subsidizing big pharma. So uh, the subsidy argument is a little uh, hard to understand as well. Um, I'm sure I haven't given a fair characterization to all of these. Uh, Simon, I know you'll come through and, uh, and, uh, and give the other side. Let me just quickly mention the, the current state of the negotiation. This is actually an easier thing to explain because I think um, 
you know, essentially, if the U.S. negotiating proposal were adopted in NAFTA 2.0, uh, there would be no more ISDS. I mean, what, what the headline, what you've all heard about is this idea that each party should be allowed to opt in to ISDS. So it sh would not be subject to uh, investor state claims unless it agreed uh, to that jurisdiction. Uh, well, of course, then the presumption is the US would uh, opt out. Otherwise, why would it offer this? Um, and then, so you ask yourself, could a Canadian or Mexican politician, even if it thought these rules were very important, justify politically having its investors have no access to bring claims against the, U the US, but itself being subject? I think um, you know, when, when, when we've heard Ambassador Lighthizer talk publicly more about his concerns about ISDS, I think there's an understanding that the end result uh, of this would be to essentially uh, not have uh, the mechanism available. But anyway, beyond that, they've also created carve-outs. I mentioned the five core protections. Uh, they would remove uh, the minimum standard of treatment, that absolute standard under customary international law. You could no longer bring those claims. Uh, you could no longer bring claims for expropriation unless the government went in and physically seized your property. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there is not a great deal of doubt about at least the, where, where the U.S. would prefer uh, to go on this. Uh, now we'll have to see what happens during the course of uh, negotiations. Lastly, what should be the outcome? Uh, here I think it's really important because uh, rather than spending all this time to uh, dismantle the protections in, in Chapter 11, this was such an important opportunity to address uh, public concerns about how ISDS operates. I mean, remember, NAFTA's 20-some years ago, um, the US had never been a respondent in one of these cases until NAFTA. So we had the experience of the 18 cases through the 1990s. And it illustrated certain concerns about both the substance of the rules as well as how the procedures work to enforce those rules. And so we made changes. We had two uh, bilateral investment treaty reviews, which essentially now reflect our FTAs um, as well. And, and, and we, we made changes. So the minimum standard of treatment didn't pre wasn't previously tied to customary international law. Um, the uh, expropriation obligation now includes an annex about what tribunals are supposed to look for that is essentially, they are the factors of our Supreme Court jurisdiction jurisprudence. Um, on the procedural side, it is now much more transparent. You know, the notice of arbitration, the briefs, the hearings, the awards, um, things to deal with conflicts of interest um, by the arbitrators, uh, a, an expedited procedure to deal with frivolous claims. It, 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 we, we should be spending our time in the negotiation on these really important improvements that address substantive concerns. Um, and, uh, and maybe we'll still get there. So let me end on that optimistic note. Okay, thanks. Do I need to do something specific here? Oh, look at that. Okay, good afternoon. Uh, I'm John Magnus, um, and uh, this um, very brief presentation on Chapter 19 with a final brief word at the end on Chapter 11 uh, is um, uh, a compilation of personal views, not views that, as far as I'm aware, any client holds. Maybe some of them would agree with some of it, but it's not been discussed. 
Um, chapter 19 of the NAFTA is what the NAFTA has on uh, uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duties. Um, and uh, it provides an alternative system for appellate review of the agency decisions that are made in all three countries um, uh, involving goods that are traded between and among NAFTA uh, parties. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background uh, about, about uh, how it came to be and then um, uh, try to stir the pot a little bit with some comments on the, the sort of the, the politics and the, and the political rationale, et cetera. Uh, okay, original rationale? Yes. Uh, the original rationale for Chapter 19 was, uh, uh, I would say, uh, can be captured in the, uh, with these three uh, little bullets here. There was a concern on the part of our NAFTA partners that um, the U.S. system was uh, not entirely fair. Uh, and uh, that uh, view was aimed at both what we do at the agency level and, and um, then also at what occurred at the, at the appellate level. Um, uh, the United States was not uh, willing to entertain uh, the idea of having different institutional arrangements as far as at the agency level for investigating dumping and subsidization. Um, but uh, I think, I think uh, bias there is meant to comprehend the idea that, that um, uh, you had uh, uh, biased agencies and then, and then uh, a, a, a supervisory situation with the courts uh, that uh, was um, uh, characterized by the use of a rubber stamp too prepared to automatically approve the work of our biased agencies. Um, so um, uh, a second, a second uh, consideration was uh, involved speed, uh, that sometimes court appeals of our anti-dumping and countervailing uh, duty determinations takes or took uh, quite a long time, which was undeniably true. Um, and because that work, when done in court, is being, is being done by, by adjudicators that you can't put a time limit on, because of Article Three of the Constitution, um, uh, that it made sense to see if you could de design something that would deliver appellate review more quickly. Um, and then I would say the rest of the original rationale, and maybe I should have come to this one first, was just some sort of general idea that, as in other areas, the, the NAFTA should be WTO plus on trade remedies, that somehow we should um, have some understanding with each other that uh, puts each other in a better situation in regard to trade remedies, just like uh, putting each other in a better situation with regard to government procurement and other areas where the agreement was WTO plus. Um, uh, the um, United States used to hold the view that um, WTO plus makes all kinds of sense in all kinds of other areas, but no sense at all with regard to trade remedies. Uh, not so clear based on our behavior now in the NAFTA 2.0 whether we still hold that view, but we used to hold that view that um, it makes no sense uh, to uh, uh, monkey around and wind up with differentiated rules uh, in the trade remedy area because you may wind up being called upon to do accumulated cases uh, and have uh, people, you know, in the same case, subject to different rules and, and create really quite a mess. So it had always been to that time, and really until this year, <laughs> uh, the, the view of the United States that uh, FTA negotiations were the wrong time and place to talk about trade remedy rules. Uh, but certainly um, uh, there was um, a desire on the part of our NAFTA partners and had been at the time of the, of the, of the free trade agreement with Canada to have a WTO plus deal on trade remedies. Okay, actual performance of Chapter 19 reviews. Um, uh, I used to follow this really closely, uh, and I used to do that because I was um, doing paid work for a client that hated the Chapter 19 system. 
Um, uh, that was a long time ago, and so the part of the record I'm most familiar with is the early part of it, uh, during which there were some horrifyingly bad decisions and a very regrettable uh, pattern of voting that occurred along national lines by the members of panels. Um, it's my understanding that the more recent uh, data on all of those points is nowhere near as alarming, and that the Chapter 19 system has um, uh, uh, operated better uh, uh, along those metrics, in other words, um, uh, not any kind of a noticeable pattern in, in recent cases of the voting breaking out along national lines. And um, uh, uh, from, uh, from um, the point of view of, of uh, sort of um, uh, uh, imitating the, the deferential approach that uh, uh, courts take and are supposed to take uh, to expert agency decision making in this area, the Chapter 19 panels uh, became, um, have become uh, more uh, careful and humble uh, in the more recent time frame. I'll just say from my own personal point of view, anecdotal experience, I've served twice. Uh, and um, I was in the majority both times, so I certainly um, am very well aware that, that Chapter 19 panels can reach what I would consider to be the right answer. Um, you meet all kinds of people. Some of them um, know more than others about uh, law, <laughs> about anti-dumping, about economics. You know, people, people can get into uh, this system with different kinds of expertise and lacking different kinds of expertise as well. Um, uh, and so it's really a mixed bag. Um, and um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, my, my, the only other personal comment I'd make is, is that your experience as a panelist, I think, depends very substantially on uh, how well supported you are by the Secretariat, which in my case, both times I've served has been great. And also uh, the quality of your panel chair makes a big difference, which in my case, both have been great. I, the first time I served on a panel, uh, Lisa Katine, who's no longer Lisa Katine, Lisa Gerchek was the chair, and then this most recent time, Steve Powell, and they were fantastic. Uh, so, but um, with, a, with a, uh, a so so chair, I think serving on a panel could really get to be pretty aggravating. Okay, um, conceptual issues, super quick. The uh, biggest thing to um, cause you to scratch your head about this system is that it conjures into existence an international body to, to decide a question of national law. Right? I get that in the Chapter 20 context, the WTO dispute settlement context, where you have questions of international law to decide, uh, then it makes sense to assign that task, that interpretive task, to some sort of an international body. But when the decision you're making is what the requirements of some individual nation, nation's law might be, um, then there's really no particular reason to involve human beings who don't have training in that legal system, and no reason to have an international body involved in it. So, um, you know, the, the, the question in front of a Chapter 19 panel was, did the investigating authority correctly apply its national law? There's not a, there is no space in any of that, no need for international law expertise and, uh, or for application of international law or anything of the sort. So um, it's, it's oddly designed from that point of view. It's a procedural answer to a substantive disagreement. Uh, so, you know, there was... Um, a discussion about uh, how are we going to exempt each other from our trade laws? The answer was, well, we're not. And then, well, uh, how are we going to soften the way they apply? Well, we're not. Um, and, and um, well, isn't it entirely appropriate that in the context of a free trade agreement that we're going to sort of stop using anti-dumping? 
Well, no, not really. Um, uh, you know, in, if we have a really robust free trade agreement, then you can probably anticipate there will be less dumping and therefore less anti-dumping. So it just happens. You don't have to, you don't have to design it. Anyway, there was a whole discussion like that going on and uh, unable to come up with um, a, a real negotiated answer on any of that. The, the negotiator said, well, let's just install a procedural kind of an answer that, uh, that changes who does the appellate review. Odd choice. Uh, probably something was needed in order to get the free trade agreement with Canada uh, to uh, launch when it launched. Um, but uh, that, was a very, that was a very odd and I think unfortunate uh, choice that they made. Um, won't get deeply into constitutionality. I remain of the view that if the constitutional challenge to Chapter 19 ever does go to final uh, court decision, that it will be held to be unconstitutional. Um, uh, and uh, un under, the, under the, the Supreme Court precedents as I understand them. Um, but um, uh, that bullet has been successfully dodged up to now. Um, okay, uh, chapter 19 politics, super quick. Concentrated pockets of interest, uh, one of which uh, has uh, caused some of your fellow conference goers to convene in the other room where softwood lumber is under discussion. Um, uh, there are not a ton of interests in the United States, at least, that feel very strongly for or against Chapter 19. Um, uh, it isn't really uh, uh, a, it isn't really a sovereignty thing, um, uh, and so it's really uh, it's it's not of interest so, so much interest to that crowd. Um, but it, it has it can have and it has had significant. Uh, 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 influence uh, um, uh, on particular disputes, softwood lumber being at the head of that list. Um, uh, coming back very briefly to this idea of monkeying with trade remedy rules and FTAs, so now apparently uh, the United States government uh, is of the view that we can, in fact, um, have uh, sort of take, take up uh, anti-dumping and anti-dumping rules, substantive anti-dumping rules as a, as a matter, you know, to be negotiated in the, in the, in the context of an FTA. Um, so uh, I suspect that in the fullness of time we will be mighty sorry that we did that um, because um, it, now we won't be able in the future to say, look, we just don't, it's the wrong, it's the wrong forum to talk about trade remedies, um, which has has, I think, served us well over time. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, and, and, and even in the context of that one, which is, I guess, another subject for another panel, but you know, we've, we've, we're bringing forward an idea on anti-dumping rules in the NAFTA that, as far as I can tell, uh, is acknowledged to sort of not fit within the WTO scheme. <laughs> so uh, I, guess, I guess now there's a category in the NAFTA that's WTO minus, uh, not WTO plus. Um, uh, special treatment of our closest FTA partners, you know, I think, I think um, it's not crazy. Uh, uh, and um, Chapter 19, more than any other single thing in the NAFTA, kind of embodies it. And um, so I wonder uh, what would, you know, what would take the place of that, or would anything take the place of that, or would these relationships sort of degrade to being just sort of really not fundamentally different or better than other FTA relationships. And I'm not sure that that's really what we want or should want. Um, the broader politics of US trade remedy enforcement are um, 
uh, that's a big topic. Uh, I would guess what I would say right now is that there's a weird thing going on. You know, you have, you still have a system that's fundamentally based on facts and law, and you know the hard work of of, of careful people who compile factual information and <laughs> test it and verify it and run formulas and so forth. And then you have um, when an, when results come out, <laughs> uh, you have sort of announcements which are designed to make it appear as if these results have nothing to do with any of those things and only uh, reflect the sort of strong pro-manufacturing sensibilities of the people at the top of the executive branch heap and, and, and you know, all about attitude and nothing to do with facts and law and evidence and so forth, which is, which is it's just wrong. It's not the way these cases actually happen, but the, 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 the public discussion around them is moving in a very strange way I've never seen, and which I don't think is altogether healthy or, or very inspiring for the people doing all that hard work either. Um, so um, how that bears on our discussion of Chapter 19, I'm not sure, but it seemed, seemed relevant at the time. Okay, super quickly, a word on Chapter 11. Um, nowhere near as uh, thoughtful and careful and substantive as what you heard from um, the good Mr. Smart. Uh, but in my view, uh, it was a huge part of the original um, uh, uh, agreement that we reached with Mexico. I teach my students that the NAFTA is Chapter 11 plus everything else. Chapter 11 plus everything else. Um, and that if we um, think about the partnership that we have with Mexico as it has evolved and then try to sort of counterfactual that, uh, you know, um, uh, in a world where they had stuck with the Calvo Doctrine, I don't know where it would have gone, but it wouldn't have gone here. Um, and uh, we paid a lot <laughs> uh, to get uh, what we have, uh, and uh, I, I think intelligently. And so it's very odd to me that, that uh, we now have decided that we want to um, tear it down. And I guess um, uh, particularly in a conversation that is about what doesn't matter, uh, which is the forum, as opposed to a conversation about what does matter, which is the substantive obligations. And I think maybe this picks up on what, what Michael said, that you know, there's all the space in the world to revisit what standards of behavior the governments want to subject themselves to as regulators um, uh, in regard to their treatment of foreign investors and foreign investments. Um, and you know, they've already had occasion over the lifetime of the NAFTA to twist those dials to the right and to the left. And uh, uh, by contrast, going back to a discussion about, well, should we be willing to have our actions judged in a neutral setting? Oh my goodness. There's only one possible answer to that. The answer is, of course, you should be willing to have your actions judged in a neutral setting outside your national court system. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. Um, uh, your, your slide's still up there, so I'll mention the substantive <laughs> obligations is the first thing I want to ask about once, once we get to sort of a dis discussion. I'll just put you on notice now. That's my, that's, that question is coming. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about uh, NAFTA, NAFTA Chapter 20. I think I'll be a, a little brief. I feel like that's going to be the least contentious among us. I don't know. Maybe maybe we disagree up here, but I feel like everyone agrees on, on Chapter 20 to, to a great extent. Um, but if people don't, we can talk about it. So I, I think I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. I had planned to talk about one particular Chapter 20 issue, and then the Trump administration threw me a curveball. Um, so I have two. 
just to give you the basic background, Chapter 20 is the core state-to-state, uh, government-to-government -government dispute settlement process in the NAFTA. So governments sign a trade agreement. They take on various obligations. If one government thinks another government is uh, acting in violation of those obligations, then they can bring a complaint under the state-to-state -state dispute settlement process under Chapter 20. Um, when that happens, uh, a panel will be uh, a panel of trade experts will be established uh, to examine the issues and, and make a ruling. And if the panel uh, finds that there's a violation of the obligations, then um, there's a way to for the complainant to in, enforce. Uh, that ruling through trade sanctions to some extent. Uh, there are two issues uh, related to Chapter 20. First is the Chapter 20 selection process, the Chapter 20 panel selection process is not working. So the way these processes normally work is there, there's no standing body of judges like in a domestic court system where they just rotate through on each case. A new case comes up, they assign a judge to it. Instead, they need to, the, the parties need to select the panelists each time for each case. And as you can imagine, the two parties have differing incentives here. The complaining party would like to see that panel established, composed, appointed. Um, the responding party isn't that excited about it and has an incentive to delay. So early on in NAFTA, so some of my colleagues and I have just done a, a paper on this. We have a couple copies here. There, there might be one. There might be some outside as well. Um, so in the early years of NAFTA, uh, the first six years, we counted up um, 18 Chapter 20 complaints. So 18 complaints in, in six years, um, three per year. I mean, it's, it's a fair amount for a trade agreement among, among three parties. Uh, resulted in three panel rulings. So there was a fair amount of usage of this system early on. Then, in the period from late 2000 uh, to the end of 2001, the U.S. sort of delayed and then ultimately blocked uh, a panel that had been requested against it, against it. And since then, there have been very few complaints. We counted up three in the 17 or 18 years um, subsequent to that. Uh, so you know, it seemed like the process was working fairly well, and then it fell apart. Now, maybe this panel, you know, the blocking of the panel by the U.S. wasn't the only reason, but you know. I would say it's, it's probably a big factor in there. So how exactly did they, they block it? Um, briefly, uh, in the NAFTA, the parties were supposed to set up a roster of panelists and then choose panelists for particular cases from that roster. Uh, but in the absence of a roster, either party could use a peremptory challenge to uh, the, 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 party, the panelist um, proposed by another party. Apparently at this time, and uh, you know, I feel like I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it, but it seems like the, the general view is there was no roster in place, although I read things someplace suggesting there was, but my understanding is there was no roster in place. Um, because of that, the U.S. could use its peremptory challenges to, to, you know, to reject every uh, uh, panelist um, proposal that, that, that Mexico put forward, and in that way, stop the panel from being appointed. So. But what's the solution here? So in this paper, uh, my colleagues and I looked at, at a couple of recent agreements to see what they did about it. How did they approach this issue? So we looked at the TPP. We looked at the, the CETA, the Canada-EU trade agreement. And we looked at the EU-Japan trade agreement that's under negotiation. And some of the text has been, some draft text has been circulated. And we tried to sort of you know, discern some principles from that. Um, what can we learn from what these uh, you know, more recent negotiations have led to? And is there something that we can you know, incorporate from that into a new NAFTA if we get one? And so a couple key points. One is that 
rosters are useful um, because it's good to have a set of possible panelists out there that all that every that both that all the parties are okay with. Um, they, they've sat down, they've looked through this list of people, they said, yeah, we're okay with that person. That's a good panel. So it's good to have that roster in place. The problem is, though, we can't let the absence of a roster impede panel selection. So we have to take into account the possibility, um, because we saw it happen, uh, that there may not be a roster in place, and we need to have uh, the ability to get a panel appointed um, in that situation. So how can we do that? Uh, two um, two uh, options that, that, have, that exist, uh, one in the TPP, um, is that the, the complainant in the TPP, the complainant gets to pick one of the panelists. There's, there's Three and there's different procedures for each one, but for one of them, it says, well, if the basically if the respondent delays too much, then the complainant gets to pick that panel. So I think that's that's a pretty good solution. Um, another possible solution, though, is to have a neutral third party pick that panelist when the responding party is delayed. And so, if you look at the WTO, you have there a secretariat and a director general. And uh, that system works pretty well. If the parties don't agree, um, the, the, if, if the responding party is delaying, then the complainant can go to the secretariat and the director general and say, hey, can you select some panelists for that for us? Um, and they do that. So it might be nice to have something like that in the NAFTA. I'm not really holding my breath for it. Um, so I, I think we may have to rely more on uh, the, the complainant um, being given the option to pick in the TPP. They've done some really convoluted things, like trying to get some independent third parties, giving them the power to, to select. I don't know if it'll work. It, it looks like it, it might. Um, we, we'd have to wait to see if there ever is a TPP that's in force, and if there are disputes, and if people try to get panels selected, and we'll see how that works. So, uh, But we do think there are some general principles that you can draw on from more recent trade negotiations to improve uh, what the you know what is in the existing NAFTA. So. All right, so that's one of our Chapter 20 dispute settlement issues. The other, though, so while I'm over here worrying that the Chapter 20 dispute settlement process is too weak and it's ineffective because of the panel selection process, Ambassador Lighthizer has been worrying that Chapter 20 is too strong. And so in a recent speech at CSIS, uh, he spoke very positively about the, the more negotiation-oriented dispute settlement system that existed under the GATT. Uh, he thought back fondly on that. Um, in the context of the NAFTA renegotiation, the U.S. has now, you know, perhaps along the same lines, proposed something uh, that's been characterized as softer dispute settlement or non-binding dispute settlement. Now, it is important to point out, you know, I haven't seen the text. I don't know exactly what the language is that they're proposing. Um, what we've seen from the, the reporting on it, though, is that a responding party, under this proposal for NAFTA Chapter 20, a responding party can disregard a panel ruling if it considers it uh, clearly erroneous. Um, and when I, I read that, I, I think to myself, well, don't all countries feel that rulings against them are clearly erroneous? Um, and I think of the example of Canadian dairy. Uh, the Canadians are, are always coming up with new convoluted schemes for, for dairy regulation. And uh, you know, negotiators are always trying to come up with rules that cover that. And we've had some WTO rulings on this issue. And you can imagine that, you know, and they're talking about that in the other breakout session, that if there's a new NAFTA, we'll come up with some new rules on Canadian dairy regulation. And you know, they've, they've gone through a series of, of classes of milk. I think class seven is the one that's been contentious, it's been contentious right now. Well, I can imagine they'll come up with a class eight milk, and then there will be a NAFTA complaint over it, and the US will win that complaint, and Canada will say, well, sorry, we think that panel ruling is clearly erroneous. So it seems to me that weak dispute settlement, non-binding dispute settlement, um, is, is bad for the United States. But let me just make a more general point about this, though. It seems to me, though, that the fundamental issue about this basic state-to-state -state dispute settlement is the degree of enforceability. And people talk about 
trade dispute settlement as, as being binding, sort of the WTO system is binding, and sort of what we might do here instead is non-binding. Um, but I, I would like to point out that, the, and Jennifer knows this case well, WTO ruled against um, the EU's ban on hormone-treated beef about 20 years ago, and yet we still can't sell hormone-treated beef in the EU despite the binding nature of WTO dispute settlement. And so the way I see it is there's already some flexibility built into the system, and the current level of enforceability I think is pretty good. It's really hard to find good data on this. I, I thought to myself that sometimes I should come up with, with data on this, but it, it sounds exhausting. But it seems to me, in general, most countries comply with WTO rulings in, in most cases. Uh, and allowing respondents to disregard rulings when they think it's clearly erroneous would mean that many countries don't comply in many cases. So I, I'm open to, to tweaks in the, in the process, and obviously you know, I have a specific suggestion for approving Chapter 20 dispute settlement, but I think that, that going back to the GATT uh, is a mistake. Um, and so that, that's the, you know, the one proposal from the US on NAFTA dispute settlement that I think we, we really have to push back on. The other two I, I'm more open to, um, even in supporting, and uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the discussion. So I'm gonna wrap up there, and I'm gonna turn it over to Jennifer. Um, listen to what she has to say. Well, again, thank you to, to Simon and thank you to Cato for including me. I will confess my assignment when I was given it was basically just to listen to what had been said and react to that. Uh, so I will do my best to try to do that. But in thinking about this, um, I wanted to both, on the one hand, reflect on what has been said, but I thought I would at least start with what has not been said um, in the course of this as a way to think about how we frame um, our thoughts on dispute settlement and what has not been said to some degree, um, and I will say is always the elephant in the room whenever you start talking about uh, trade dispute settlement is the WTO's uh, dispute settlement system. Because I think the truth is when we talk about these NAFTA disputes, and here I will single out chapter 19 and chapter 20, uh, what's interesting to me is all three NAFTA parties have often, and when they can, chosen the WTO dispute settlement system over the NAFTA. You could file a Chapter 19 case, but instead you bring the case in Geneva before the WTO. You could have, I would say, before the, uh, before the United States, in my own view, blew up the Chapter 20 process, you could have filed your case before a Chapter 20 process, but you didn't. You went to, uh, you went to Geneva to file it. Uh, to date, if you just look at the data in terms of the NAFTA parties, how often does the United States bring a case against Canada or Canada against the United States or Canada against Mexico, et cetera? Uh, 36 cases in all at the WTO dispute settlement system that are just between the NAFTA parties. 11 of them, cases that could have, should have been filed under Chapter 20. 25 of them are anti-doping and countervailing duty decisions that arguably could have come before a Chapter 19 panel. So I sort of asked myself, why? I mean, why um, are the NAFTA parties in particular, and I would say maybe countries more generally, preferring to eschew their, tra their regional trade agreement dispute settlement mechanisms in favor of the WTO. And if that's true, can we learn anything from why we're doing this um, that might help us think about how to improve um, all of the NAFTA dispute settlement mechanisms. So, so why? I, I think part of it is that at least with respect to the WTO, there is a large body of cases 
many of which, I would say 62% of which, have been subject to an appellate review that therefore offers for a lot of members a lot more sense of clarity and certainty about how the case is going to come out. I mean, anybody asking a lawyer, should I file this case, the first thing they want to know is, what are my chances of winning? Uh, and at least at the WTO, with this very large body of precedent, uh, it's at least a lot easier to handicap are you going to win than it is particularly before a Chapter 20 NAFTA panel, when there have only been three decided cases in the entirety of the NAFTA. It's pretty hard to handicap how is it going to come out. Secondly, I would say uh, people point to the fact that um, there is not the ability to block, block the WTO panel process. I mean, as sort of as Simon has just said, um, at the WTO, if you cannot agree on panelists, the director general of the WTO can appoint them. And again, I think we've seen an evolution at the WTO that I don't know whether we're going to see within the re regional trade agreements. I mean, it, when the WTO dispute settlement system first came into effect, the first time a panel comes up, you would start to see at USTR everybody floating names. Does anybody know X person? Does anybody ever worked with Y person? And you would do exactly as Simon has said. I mean, you know, up comes the dispute on beef hormones. Okay, so what does the United States want as a panelist? The United States wants someone that really believes in science, that science can really tell us about whether or not eating beef that's been treated with hormones uh, is or is not a risk to your health. What does the EU want someone? A total science skeptic, someone that believes science can tell you nothing. All right, so you do have this bit of a dispute over who do you want as your panelists, but by and large, the parties would at least agree to two out of the three panelists, um, and oftentimes would, in, in the end, invoke their own panel. What's happening today in the last five years? 75 to 80% of all panels are decided by the director general. So the parties have given up on this idea that we can mutually agree upon panelists. So fine, if that's really where it's going, then why don't we in the NAFTA go to that kind of a system where we just agree nobody's ever going to agree on panelists on their own and set up a system in which there is the functional equivalent of a secretariat that will go ahead and do the panel uh, appointment process, presumably from agreed upon rosters or some other mechanism, but at least acknowledge that this is where the evolution is going. Third reason, I would argue why, um, why do people prefer to go to the WTO as opposed to somewhere else? I think is to some degree the stabilizing effect of the WTO institution of the dispute settlement body. So the WTO meets every single month in the form of this dispute settlement body to which all members of the WTO are part. Um, and they, there is a clear opportunity there for everybody to come in and talk about what's going on, both within individual cases and what's going on in terms of compliance. So when a decision is handed down, the winners and the losers all have at least a forum in which to at least let out all of their grievances. This is what I liked about the opinion. This is what I hated about it. This is where they got it right. This is where they got it wrong. This is why they got it wrong. And everybody can at least air all of their thoughts about a given decision in this formal dispute settlement body that meets on a monthly basis. Fourth, I would say um, there is a sense within the WTO, I think, of fairly good levels of compliance. Again, we have a lot of 21-5 disputes over whether it really is compliance or not. But in the main, I think most of the things that most of the studies that would look at it would say 
90% of the cases that go to the WTO, somebody is found to have violated their WTO obligations. So the complainants win 90% of the time in the WTO. That may be another reason why people prefer to go to the WTO, but in any event, um, the compliance has by and large, again, been very good. Why? Uh, again, I think there is some real meaning to this, uh, to having these monthly meetings of the dispute settlement body where the dispute settlement body, a sort of political body of made up of representatives of all the countries are coming in to this sort of monthly court of shame, if you will, where there is a lot of naming and shaming of who's come into compliance and who is not. And each country has to sort of give a little bit of a report on how's it going. And even for the United States, I think there's some element of how many times do you want to come in to this DSB and say the dog ate my homework. I, you know, I didn't get any compliance done. And at some level, I think, again, all of that motivated. The last thing I would say in terms of why do countries tend to prefer uh, the WTO dispute settlement mechanism is it allows you to mobilize third-party support. Uh, you can bring in lots of third parties on the side of your complaint, uh, again, so it's not just you. And I would say this has been particularly important in the cases against China, where there's been a lot of concern about bringing a case alone against China out of a concern that China will retaliate against you if you do that. But if you go in as a large block, or at least with a large number of other supporters with you, um, less chance that China is going to effectively be able to sing you, single you out for retaliation. So lots of reasons why. Um, Parties in general have preferred the WTO over their dispute settlement mechanism. Is any of that rationale applicable in the context of Chapter 19 or Chapter 20 of, of the NAFTA? Um, for me, I think the reason why most uh, of the Canadian and Mexican and US complaints against each other that would have, should have fallen into Chapter 20 have more been as a result of what Simon was talking about. Um, have more been as a result of the fact that the US, in essence, effectively blew up the system um, in the course of the, of, of the sugar debate. And I think that sugar debate is sort of interesting to think about in terms of what it tells us about the relationship between the NAFTA and its dispute settlement systems, chapter 19 and 20, and I'll get to 11 later, I promise, um, and, and the WTO system, because there what happened again, was the United States committed within the terms of the NAFTA to allow a certain amount of sugar to come in from Mexico, ultimately resulting in free trade in sugar coming in from Mexico. But the United States didn't actually give Mexico that access. So Mexico needed a Chapter 20 panel because this was not a WTO right that Mexico had. It was solely a NAFTA right. So Mexico needs a Chapter 20 panel in order to be able to invoke this right to ship sugar into the United States market. And as Simon described, the United States simply exercised a peremptory challenge over every single individual that Mexico named. And it didn't matter how many there were, the challenge was going to come to every single human being that Mexico could suggest as a panelist. Finally, Mexico gets so fed up with the process that they decide to bring an anti-dumping measure against United States' high fructose corn syrup that's going in, an alternative sweetener that's being imported into Mexico, immediately the United States challenges the high fructose corn syrup duties at the WTO, not at Chapter 19, at the WTO. A WTO panel then meets to hear this at which Mexico says, wait a minute here, the whole reason why we're here in the first place is because the United States is depriving us of our obligations under chapter, under the sugar provisions of the NAFTA. The panel says two things. One, Mexico, you violated the anti-dumping agreement. You cannot keep your duties on high fructose corn syrup. And with respect to the NAFTA, NAFTA what NAFTA? 
We, the WTO, do not even acknowledge the existence of the NAFTA. So you're leaving the parties, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, really without any place to really fairly adjudicate all of the things that don't fall within Chapter 20. All future SPS, TBT, et cetera, et cetera, have nowhere to go if, if they can't go uh, to, to a Chapter 20 panel. You end up having to go to the net, to, uh, again, if you can't go to Chapter 20 NAFTA, you're ending up in the WTO, which can only adjudicate provisions that are in the WTO itself. So if there are obligations, particularly these new obligations that may come in in the revised NAFTA, um, they're going to need a place to get resolved. And, and so it's important that we think about keeping Chapter 20 sort of up and viable. So then I step back really quickly and say, OK, is this good or bad um, that we have this option of going to the WTO um, as opposed to using the, the NAFTA mechanism? Do we think this is a good thing or a bad thing? I think we could debate that at some length. At a bare minimum, I think it means there's a lot less pressure to make Chapter 19 really work, and certainly a lot pressure to, less pressure to make Chapter 20 work if you can just readily go to the WTO. And I think, at least for me, that's a real negative in terms of where is there the pressure to try to use this renegotiation of, of the NAFTA to end up with, with a, a, a better process. Um, I'm going to comment just then really quickly, since that's what I was asked to do, on something that John Magnus raised in his, in his remarks, which is, do we, should we even have um, anti-dumping provisions and countervailing duty provisions among our free trade agreement partners? Are we seeing any movement toward this notion that we don't need them? Uh, um, Chad Bound from the Peterson Institute um, has put out some, I think, fairly interesting statistics that just help, at least help me sort of think about whether we are slowly moving in the direction that John described as potentially one of the motivators, which is interesting. When the NAFTA went into effect in 1994, a total of 2.9% of the imports from Canada and Mexico were subject to US anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures. Today, that number is 1.3%. So clearly, we've stopped applying as much um, anti-dumping and countervailing, we, the United States, to, to Canada and Mexico. If you look at Canada, in 1994, less than about one, just around 1%, slightly under 1% of all Canadian imports from the United States and Mexico were subject to anti-dumping duties today, 0.1%. So Canada is effectively not applying these measures to our um, exports into Canada. Mexico had about little, just under 2% of US and Canadian imports subject to duties. Um, in, in 1994, today, 1.3%. So all three countries have to some degree reduced the amount to which we apply dump countervail duties to one another. But more importantly for me, what's interesting to think about is the amount of the overlap. When the NAFTA went into effect in 1994, 40% of Canada's non-NAFTA imports, so imports from everywhere else, that were covered by anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures in Canada were also covered by countervailing duty and anti-dumping measures in the United States. In other words, when one of us does it, we all go together. That number today, 85%. So again, we are now seeing this huge overlap, I mean, sort of customs union-esque almost, where we are collectively, uh, if you will, applying 
uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures, so sort of something of interest. On Chapter 11, I'm only going to say part of the reason why I haven't discussed it at all within the context of the WTO is obviously you can't bring um, a Chapter 11 kind of a dispute uh, because uh, the WTO is state-to-state -state dispute only. So there, you, you could simply not bring um, an investor claim, um, a, 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 a private claim, if you will, against um, uh, in, in the WTO context. But I think Mike's final point is the one that I think is the most, the biggest sort of, if you will, tragedy on Chapter 11, which is that we're failing to use this as an opportunity to make some really important changes in the Chapter 11, both the process and I would argue in the substance as well. Um, and, and here, for me, uh, having sort of taught in this area and thought about this area, I, I've been very motivated to look at a lot of the work and the research that's coming out of, well, I would cite in particular Roberto Achendi at the International Monetary Fund, on if we couldn't think about different ways of resolving investor state disputes by starting with why do we have these disputes in the first place? I mean, what's, what's motivating um, these investor state disputes? Um, and, and his work that is showing very heavily that an awful lot of the problem stems from the fact that our, our bilateral investment treaties or our, the substance of what is in Chapter 11 is negotiated at the national level. The approval of the investment is done oftentimes at the national level. The dispute is at the local level. And the question is, can we figure out a way to design a mechanism that puts those three, the investor, the national, and the local, because it's oftentimes the local jurisdiction that has the not-in-my-backyard notion about investments. And can we think about potentially looking at more subtlety in the way we approach dispute settlement in terms of thinking about the different reasons why there is an investment? In other words, the kinds of disputes and the kinds of substance that you need connected to a dispute if the whole reason for the investment in the first place was to seek access to low-cost labor and what you were really trying to do was set up a maquiladora, a cut and sew, a kind of an operation where what you're really doing is purchasing low-cost labor, the kinds of substantive rules and disputes that you're going to have are fairly different than if your investment was done natural resource seeking. I went in because I wanted oil. I went in because I wanted a certain mineral. I went in for a particular mining operation. The whole way in which you're going to think about in an investor dispute may be very different if that was the nature of and the driver behind the investment. I mean, similarly, if what you really went into the investment to do is get access to that local market, that's, again, going to be a very different kind of dispute that you're going to have, and whether we could create any more subtleties and, and distinctions in the way we think about dispute settlement in the Chapter 11 context that could let the Chapter 11 and, in general, the NAFTA process once again lead the way. Because I will end by saying one of the real, I think, benefits of the NAFTA is it was the first. I mean, it was the first time there was a consensus around how to approach international trade dispute settlement. It was really the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement that was the one that established the idea that you should solve disputes through ad hoc panels, 
with certain kinds of rules, with certain kinds of time frames, with certain kinds of processes. That began in Chapter 18 of, of the Canada Free Trade Agreement. And I would just wish that we could use this as an opportunity to once again let some of the ideas that have come out of the NAFTA process over this time lead us again back to a, an improved dispute settlement mechanism, because uh, I think it's going to be increasingly needed rather than um, just letting it all go by. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jennifer. So we have a little time for discussion and Q&A. I know the reception is starting soon. If, if people are getting hungry and want to sneak out, that's okay. But I'm going to kick us off with, with, with a question that I think everyone will have an opinion on, and then um, we'll see if there are, are questions in the audience. So my question is, I want to pick up on John's point that we need to look at the substance. And I also want to pick up on Mike's point. Mike said that, well, where are the cases where there are non-discriminatory regulations that have been found in violation? I have one answer to that. Todd Tucker's out there. He might have another. The one I can think of is the Bill Con case, but I can't remember it well enough that we can really talk about it. Um, but, but, so, but let me ask this question, though. If, if your focus, at least the, in, in that one statement, if your focus is on non-discrimination, what do you think of um, the, the, the U.S. proposals that you mentioned to take out the minimum standard of treatment and indirect expropriation? Um, can you live with that? Because we're left then with the non-discrimination provisions and the uh, actual expropriation provisions. So there's still a lot in there. Related to that, uh, what would you think of including GATT Article 20-like exceptions um, to, to all these obligations? There are other investment treaties or investment chapters of trade agreements that other countries have signed that have that. Uh, so in terms of the substance, are, are, is, the, is the Trump administration moving in a direction that's not too bad, or are there other ways they could do that? You know, how, do, how do you feel about those particular aspects of the substance? So I'll start with, we'll go in the same order. So Mike, okay. John, Jennifer. Great. Um, you know, I'd make a general point that I really think the burden is on those who say a change is needed. It shouldn't be up to, I guess, you know, we should go into this thinking, okay, if there are problems that have been identified, let's fix them. You mentioned the Bilcon case. Actually, that was both a violation of fair and equitable treatment and national treatment. Um, you know, in my opinion, it came out exactly the right way. Um, but when I said non-discriminatory regulation has never been overturned, I, I, I didn't mean to limit it to, 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 to that universe of, uh, of issues. Do I think that needs to be a, accompanied by a minimum standard of treatment that is judged in absolute terms for the most egregious forms of government misconduct that might not have a domestic comparator um, and you know, therefore not violate national treatment? Absolutely yes. And again, let's, let's look at the cases where that claim has been asserted and find out, are there circumstances where we think the tribunal has gone beyond what we would understand the definition to be? And the tie to customary international law is incredibly important. What that requires a claimant to do is to show that the conduct would be such that other countries, other important countries around the world, would refrain from out of a sense of legal duty. It's a very difficult standard to meet. And so it's interesting. In, in, in Europe, there's been a big debate about ISDS generally, but the minimum standard of treatment in particular. And so they were responding to this concern out there, NGOs and others, saying it's too undefined. It's too open-ended. It's too, the possibility of abuse is too high. And so what they have done is they have articulated a series of criteria 
that equate to the minimum standard of treatment. I would argue that if I were representing an investor, I would take their definition of the minimum standard of treatment over the one in the, in the US model that has been subject to interpretation in many, in many cases. So, so you would prefer, you, you would be happy with their standard. You would, I mean, if, if you were writing the NAFTA, you might say, hey, let's take that and incorporate that into NAFTA. You know, I, I, I don't think that would end up satisfying people. I think- But would it satisfy you? Would you be happy with it? No, actually, all I'm saying is that I, arguably it is more pro-investor than the US approach. Okay, yeah, no, I, I don't disagree, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have um, much of an answer except to say that, that uh, perhaps uh, uh, inspired by, by uh, our surroundings here, um, uh, I, I don't want to see, I, I, I like the extent to which the rules in Chapter 11 are deregulatory. And I don't want to see the governments uh, uh, dilute that. I don't like the U.S. proposal to change those substantive rules. Uh, but in any case, I think that um, that's the, the kind that's the, that's what they should be engaging about. I mean, because well, we've talked about fair and equitable treatment. I, I mean, I mean, to, uh, on the on the substantive side of it, I mean. Well, part of it, me says in the context of dispute settlement, to me, part of it is thinking about um, the point of Chapter 11 is both a dispute settlement mechanism and um, an encapsulation of substantive law. And so, you know, the question is whether how far that substantive law can deviate from what in essence, what is otherwise customary international law or other law. Obviously, we have lots of bilateral investment treaties that also set down a substantive standard. Um, and then the question is, who holds you to that substantive standard? And obviously, in, in the NAFTA, you've got the dispute settlement mechanism of Chapter 11 accompanied by, and the law that they apply is the law that is in Chapter 11. If you now start to think about going to something different, or as, as Mike is saying, you know, think about what would be the alternative. So the alternative is if you can't go to a Chapter 11 procedure, procedure, you are then in a domestic court. And then the question comes, what law would the court apply? And is that law substantively that different um, than what would be applied in Chapter 11? And you know, my own sense is on a lot of it, um, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a significant distinction because many of the courts would read these same terms um, very similarly to what is being read in. So again, I'm not sure you would see a big change on the substance of the law in terms of how a case might come out. Okay. I, I, you were just giving another forum in which you can claim, make this particular claim under Chapter 11, but I don't think it's a big departure from what is existing um, in law in, in other forums. What's that? At least in the U.S. Yeah, all right, I'm sorry, in the U.S., excuse me, in the U.S., yes. Well, as Phil Levy learned last night, I can argue about ISDS all night, um, but I want to give other people a chance to, to ask questions, um, see what they have to say. Uh, I, so raise your hand. Uh, somebody's already doing it. Take the mic. Uh, mention your affiliation and then ask away. Hello, Brett Fortnum from Inside U.S. Trade. Um, for just a, a moment, let's consider um, that the three proposals the Trump administration um, has on dispute settlement happen. Um, as difficult as that may be um, for some to believe, what does that effectively do to NAFTA? Um, you know, we we keep writing, you know, unenforceable, but can can 
you you all just kind of walk us through what that does to the deal. Are we just going to see more actions in domestic court? Is NAFTA going to become irrelevant because of these proposals, or what what do you see as the the practical impact? Anyone want to take it? I have some thoughts, but if you've got, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so, unlike the others here, although I, so John and I, I think agree on, on Chapter 19, uh, I disagree with the others on Chapter 11. So, for me, if you take out Chapter 19 and Chapter 11, it's fine. It's not a big deal. They, they don't add that much. Uh, you know, for Chapter 19, I think the Court of National Trade, as far as, as far as I can tell now, although I'm looking for some actual data on this, you know, d- does it does a good job um, with reviewing agency decisions and for reasons that we could talk about at, at length. I just don't see that much value in in ISDS. So, so let me focus on Chapter 20 and say, well, what would happen if they if they weaken Chapter 20? be more like the GATT uh, you know, negoti- negotiated system. I don't think that's exactly the right way to put it, but I mean, that was the word that Ambassador Lighthizer used. It's a really interesting question. As much as I, I'm wary of it, uh, I, I am curious. What would, what would happen if we went back to a, a weaker, softer dispute settlement system? And I'm just going to speculate, um, and I, I don't know. I'd be curious you know, what the other, others have to say about this. I would say that on the basic issue of, of bringing tariffs down to zero, which, which NAFTA does for almost all products, that would still work. It would still be in effect. I mean, I just don't think you're going to get sort of the obvious, well, hey, you know, this can't be enforced, so we're just going to raise tariffs on, uh, you know, beef to 10%. I don't think they would necessarily do that. So I think it might be okay for, for um, you know, sort of a basic obligation like the tariffs have to come down to zero. But on the other hand, uh, where you have, you know, more complex regulations, and I mentioned Canadian dairy earlier, I just, I don't know. I think there are going to be, you know, a few contentious issues where an enforceable NAFTA could, you know, create liberalization and an unenforceable NAFTA wouldn't. Um, you know, I don't know how, exactly how it would play out. There, there, you know, in the GATT dispute settlement system, there were cases that, that, you know, people complied with. So maybe there are, you know, maybe there were still some cases under NAFTA that could be adjudicated uh, effectively. But I do think that there would be some more contentious ones that, that it didn't work. And you would either, you know, people just wouldn't bother with the NAFTA complaint. I mean, as Jennifer said, well, you know, you'd look for WTO obligations that could do the same thing. And you would go there instead. Um, but there, there may be some NAFTA obligations that are WTO plus, And then, uh, maybe they just can't be enforced. So I don't know. Th- those are those are my thoughts. Uh, if anyone else has anything to add on that, um, just on on Chapter Eleven, it's it's very hard to say, or at least quantify what the impacts would be. What I think you can say for sure is that there are um, some significant risks uh, for uh, companies when they invest anywhere abroad, and and particularly in 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 Mexico. Um, and there are uh, uncertainties about the ability to uh, secure your rights through the judicial system. Um, and therefore, you know, the substantive obligations in Chapter 11 provide a degree of confidence um, that if an investment goes off the rails, uh, there is some form of uh, investment recourse. So that we know. Um, but, you know, companies make decisions on where to invest based on a lot of factors. And so I think it would be very difficult to isolate that in the absence of these legal protections and enforcement mechanism, how would that change investing behavior? I would say that it would, but how, 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 do, you, how do you quantify it? Let me just say one brief word on, on the benefits of some of that investment. I read recently where there is uh, the largest private energy company in Mexico is actually American. It's uh, Sempra in, in, in San Diego. And they have invested, developed um, uh, 
natural gas uh, distribution systems generation. They're helping basically Mexico make the conversion uh, to, uh, to natural gas. Um, they have over the years uh, imported uh, billions of dollars of steel and pipeline from the United States energy equipment. And actually, because of that infrastructure investment, Mexico is now by far our largest market for natural gas. It's like 60% of all U.S. exports, which means, of course, you know, you know, producers in the Bakken Shale and the Eagle Ford are, 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 are employed because of investment in Mexico, which, you know, again, uh, benefits from and supported by uh, these, these obligations. Take that away and we're worse off. How much? I think it's hard to say. Super quickly, Chapter 19 has always been a solution in search of a problem. We'd be fine without it. Chapter 11 is a gem, and we'd be sorry if we lost it. And Chapter 20, uh, we've muddled through without a workable one for a while, and so I think it's pretty hard to say anything definitive about how important it is to have one that works um, because the NAFTA has delivered a great measure of the benefits that we rely upon it to, to, to deliver uh, through all these years of Chapter 20 being uh, decommissioned. I don't really have anything okay. to add. I would more or less agree. So well, Let me add just one thing is that Mexico has said um, without, you know, if ISDS is, is, is taken away uh, or if everybody opts out, what we would then do is pass a foreign investment statute that would do the same thing. And I know there are other countries that have done that. I don't know the effectiveness of those. Somebody probably has studied that and could tell you, hey, is this, is this a suitable alternative? Is this another way to do it? I don't know the answer, but Mexico suggested they might do that. Yeah, I mean, many countries have just that, yeah. but it lacks the, the international remedy. Yeah, but, but I guess the question is, is the domestic remedy effective? And I, I just, I don't know. Is, is it, has, have people, I mean, I, I asked this on Twitter the other day and somebody pointed to me a whole bunch of information, but I haven't had time to digest it. So the question is, does it work for them? Does it, is it an effective alternative? Because it's not necessarily the traditional local court. It's maybe something different. I, I don't know how they all work. I mean, you could set it up different ways. You could, I mean, you could, you, you could still take people out of domestic courts and send them to a neutral arbitrator, but do it through a domestic statute, I would think. But... I mean, you, you can, or as you, you say, you also can provide for for international arbitration through contract. Right. So, but again, what what problem are we solving for here? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm tempted to get into this ISDS debate, but I'll, but I'll, I'll, let me just talk to you because I will tell you I have an opinion on that. But I want to see if anyone else has a question. There's uh, Todd Tucker probably has an ISDS question, so he'll probably get us back to this debate. Uh, Todd Tucker, Roosevelt Institute. Uh, yes, Simon, you and I have talked about sort of the national treatment only uh, version of an investment treaty. And I, I think it, it wouldn't be an investment treaty anymore. I mean, if you look at the statistics on sort of successful claims on sort of a US style national treatment provision, there's very few of them. And in part because the kinds of uh, the kinds of treatment that you know Mike was talking about, it's, it's very particularized treatment of specific investors. And it's hard to sort of ex ante specify all of the very specific ways that an investor gets mistreated. And it's not typically along sort of like a discriminatory basis on for all, you know, all investors of a certain nationality are treated differently than another. I mean, it does, you can point to instances in history where that's happened, but that's not by far the sort of the most common form of investor mistreatment. So I think it, basically a national treatment only investment treaty is, is not really an investment treaty uh, worth particularly a lot to, to the investors. Um, but I so, just a very concrete question, John, on the chapter 19 issues. I, I, it, 
I, I guess I don't understand sort of when the panels are coming together and they're interpreting US domestic law, you know, we see that there's in ISDS cases and in WTO cases, there's sort of factual elements where the, the adjudicators are looking at sort of the application of, of US law. Are they, I mean, what is the sort of formal, formal characteristic of what their decision, the decision that comes out of a chapter 19 panel is? Is it a domestic legal decision or is it an international legal decision? Because that would affect, it seems like the constitutionality of the, of the thing. I don't know if it's, it's a clear question. I, I, th I think this uh, un understands your question correctly. So it is possible for the agencies in the case of, uh, in, the, in the United States, uh, for the, the, the agency whose decision has, has been um, the subject of the appellate, of, of the chapter 19 decision, it's possible for the agency to um, uh, refuse to uh, obey. That is not possible when the appellate review is being performed by a court. It is possible for the agency to refuse to obey uh, in theory. In reality, um, uh, uh, you know, that the, the, the executive, you know, the, uh, well, the Commerce Department sits inside the executive branch of the U.S. government. And so the chances of, of that agency <laughs> ever refusing to obey a Chapter 19 decision uh, are essentially zero. Um, and uh, I, Jennifer maybe could speak to whether uh, the International Trade Commission might ever uh, rise up on its hind legs and, and, and uh, you know, uh, say no to a Chapter 19 decision. But I doubt it. There was, there was you know, the Fresh Children Frozen Pork case uh, uh, in the way long ago where there were a couple of commissioners who said we should do exactly that. It's theoretically possible for us to, you know, this is a terrible decision. Um, it came out of the early period of the Chapter 19 system where, in my view, there were a lot of terrible decisions. And there were a couple of commissioners who, who wrote sort of a dissenting opinion saying, you know, we should, um, we should pull a Nancy Reagan here and just say no. Um, uh, but it, that's not what the commission itself actually did. Yeah, and here I think there's a distinction. Uh, yes, having sat at the International Trade Commission, you know, the, the more problematic one is when you think whatever a Chapter 19 panel has told you to do is not consistent with U.S. law. So again, there the International Trade Commission is going to say, I don't care what they tell me, my task is to apply U.S. statutory law. U.S. statutory law says these are the factors I'm supposed to look at. And just because they, some other panel out there, whether it's even Chapter 19 or whether it's the WTO says, no, you should do something else, again, the commission is going to say not unless the Congress tells me to. So it will depend on whether the perception is that you can fulfill whatever is what a Chapter 19 panel told you to do consistent with U.S. law or not. Um, and that really, I think, was the rub that, that John was speaking of, where some members of the commission perceived it as requiring them to do something that was not permitted or not, you know, inclusive within the statutory framework uh, of what, what is, was then the existing U.S. law. I guess I'll just add to that. So I've served twice, and in each case, one was reviewing a U.S. Commerce Department a dumping decision, one was review, reviewing an ITC injury determination. In each case, we, re, we remanded an individual issue to the agency and said, uh, on this issue, you got to, you know, uh, your decision as it stands right now is not adequate and you got to do the following things. And they responded exactly the way they would have responded if that came from a court. Uh, in in every particular, so there there was there was sort of you know this this theoretical idea that that somehow this is 
coming back on remand from a panel uh, to whom we could thumb our nose if we felt like it, never came up. So look, it's 5.30, and I don't want us to miss on whatever they have at the reception out there. The other session might already be out there stealing all the food and drink. Um, so I'm, let's wrap it up now. Uh, enjoy the reception. Feel free to hang out, ask us more questions, and talk. But let's just say thanks to all the panelists, and uh, thank you for all for coming to the conference. <laughs>